0: Hello humans, hello humans of the world, it is me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. How are (laughs) you? It's been a couple of weeks since I've been uh, here in the little uh, studio in the bunker in Eden Prairie, and I am thrilled to be back. I've got my uh, wonderful, fantastic producer, Brett Johnson, manning the controls, and you have me, Ellie Krug. Um, for an Ellie Krug talking head show. No big interview uh, today, sorry. With the 4th and with how busy I was in June, I just not able to line anybody up. But hopefully next week we'll have someone. But today all you get is me, but it's all fresh content, all new content. How do you like that? How do you like those apples? I hope you all had a wonderful 4th, okay? And I hope that uh, your July, um, also known here in Minnesota as possibly October, um, is going well for you, okay? Um, As I always do, I'm going to begin with our featured idealist, and that happens to be Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, a name that most of you probably aren't familiar with. Uh, She represents Illinois' 14th congressional district, which is Um, the uh, former House Speaker Denny Hastert's Old District, the far western Chicago burbs of Geneva, Crystal Lake, and Woodstock. She came into office in the 2018 midterm blue wave and survived a Republican Republican challenger last fall. That challenge last fall was pretty close. Um, Out of 401,000 votes, uh, uh, Lauren Underwood, won by just 5,400, and it took nine days to call the race. Her challenger, uh, for a long time, refused to concede. I don't know if he's even conceded at this point, but there you go. Here's the story about Lauren Underwood, and she's got a, a different uh, portal into Congress. She was born in 1986 in a Cleveland suburb, but at the age of three, her family moved to the sprawling Chicago suburb of Naperville, where she remained throughout high school. She went. She then went uh, to the University of Michigan, where she obtained her nursing degree. Okay, so now you're getting the sense of how her portal was a little bit different. Um, and so it's not the standard trajectory into politics. And it was at Michigan, though, where she took a class on nursing politics, which Lauren uh, later said changed her life so much so that she decided to study and advocate for healthcare policy as a career. That then propelled her to John Hopkins University in Baltimore, where she obtained her master's in nursing and in public health. She's also a registered nurse. Five years later, in 2014, uh, Lauren Underwood was working for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as a senior advisor on implementing the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. From there, she went on to become the senior director of strategy for the Medicaid program that serves Chicago. And in August 2017, uh, Lauren Underwood announced that she would run for the, house, uh, for the House for Illinois' 14th Congressional District. And in that first election, she took uh, the primary. She had the primary against six other opponents. She took 57% of the vote. A wrinkle here is that Lauren Underwood suffers from a heart condition. And it was because her 2018 challenger, uh, Rudy Hultgreen, Hultgren, H-U-L-T-G-R-E-N, uh, probably um, you know didn't get that right, Hultgren, a Republican incumbent who had voted he had vo- voted to repeal the ACA and he had vowed that he would repeal it. That's when um, Lauren Underwood decided that she was going to run for Congress. She, um, like 129 million other Americans, has a preexisting condition which would. Uh, cause her to be denied medical coverage if the ACA was repealed. By the way, just because I always have to make it about me, I'm, you know because I'm transgender, I'm included in that category of pre-existing conditions among the other 129 million Americans. I bet many of you listening right now are also in that category. Congresswoman Underwood is the co-founder of the Black Maternal Health Caucus, which was founded a year ago to address disparities in health care for Black women, particularly pregnant Black women and new moms, along with the Caucus co-founder uh, Congresswoman Alma Adams and Senator Cory Booker, they the three of them introduced the Black maternal excuse me the back, Black maternal health mommy. Momnibus, M-O-M-N-I-B-U-S. You know, we always heard about omnibus. It's the Momnibus Act of 2021. I'm going to talk about that proposed legislation and the reasons for it in the next segment. A couple last items about Congresswoman Underwood. When she was first elected in 2018 at the age of 32, she became the youngest black woman to serve in the House of Representatives. She is also the first person of color to represent her district, which was firmly blue and now is turning purple with 20 percent of the district's residents being diverse and non-white. Congresswoman Underwood is also a registered nurse, as I said earlier, and a lifelong Girl Scout, even to today. Talk about being a role model for young girls and women. I suspect that we will hear a lot more about Lauren Underwood, an idealist who is trying to make a difference in the world. Please remember her name. When I come back, I'm going to to, uh, talk about the black maternal health momnibus bill and the facts that underlie it. Um, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. I love hearing from listeners. Follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug. We'll be back in a second after these important words from our sponsors. Bye. I want to the breath that's true. And we're back on AM 950, Ellie 2.0 Radio. That is me, Ellie Krug, your host here. How are you? How you doing, huh? Okay. All right. In the last segment, I talked about uh, Congresswoman Lauren Underwood representing uh, Illinois' Congressional 14th District. And as I related, um, she had made black maternal health, um, the care of pregnant black women and their newborns, a priority. Um, and a focal point for her legislative service. While I was aware of general health disparities between white Americans and Americans who identify as persons of color, I didn't know the specifics as it related to um, pregnant uh, women of color, particularly black women. And so I did some research. And uh, let me share some facts with you, okay? Some of what follows is from the website Every Mother Counts. That's all you have to do is Google. Every Mother Counts. It is a nonprofit working across the globe to protect pregnant women and their children in the world. Annually, more than 300,000 women die as a result of pregnancy or childbirth complications. That's like the population of St. Paul proper every year dying, okay, as a result of, of pregnant women not getting the care that they need. Now, in the U.S. in 2019, uh, 754 women died of maternal causes. This was up by nearly 100 maternal deaths compared to 2018. So U.S. going in the wrong direction in Syria. And when you look at the racial breakdown of those deaths, these are, are of maternal deaths. So these are women who die before childbirth <clears throat> due to their pregnancy, in childbirth, or within a year after the childbirth because of complications from the pregnancy. And um, I'm only really talking about the women here. I'm not talking about the children because there are a lot of children that die as well, um, of course. And so when you look at the racial breakdown of deaths in the United States, you will find that the maternal death rate for white color women— remember, I refer to white people as white color because most white people— don't believe that their skin color is, is is actually a color. The maternal death rate for white color women is about 18 deaths per 100,000 women. Okay, now you remember that 18 deaths. Hold on, I'll come back to that. But for black women, the death rate for black women, maternal death rate is 44 deaths per 100,000 pregnant black women. That it, that it, that is, that is two and a half times that of white-colored women, that black women are dying from maternal causes. Um, By the way, the U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate of any developed country in the world. That is, the, the greatest country in the world... As I have been hearing so much of lately, I'm not kidding you. Okay, hey, it was the Fourth of July. The greatest country in the world. Oh, by the way, we don't have universal health care. By the way, <laughs> we we you know we don't have basic guaranteed income for people. Okay, our rate in the United States in 2020 was 17.2 deaths per live birth. Okay, so we're combining all skin colors all classifications of maternal deaths, okay, 17.2 per 100,000 live births of Americans dying. 17.2. That compares to three or fewer deaths per 100,000 women in the Netherlands, Norway, New Zealand, and a host of other countries. Think about that. We are... Ah, uh, five almost six times our mortality rate is almost six times maternal mortality rate almost six times that of Norway. <laughs> Why is that? Might have something to do from the fact that the United States does not have universal health care system. So you know you can be proud of the United States. you can tell me it's the greatest country in the world. I have really. Um, fallen back uh, away from that, kind of, those broad statements, because it's very clear to me, um, yeah, it's the greatest country for some people, but for others, many, many others in our country, not necessarily so. Why is the black maternal mortality rate so high in the United States? Well, we begin with the fact that black women as a group have less opportunities for a life equal to white women. The poverty rate for Black women is about twenty percent, double the ten percent poverty rate for white color women. When you lump all the white color women, you lump all the Black women into groups, their own groups. So, right off the bat, Black Black women have um, the deck stacked against them. And you may recall from a prior statement, where I prior segment, read it right, Ellie, where I talked about educational disparities. uh, between Minnesota white color third graders and children of color, where 66%, uh, this would be stats from 2019, 66% of white color kids read at or beyond third-grade reading level. But barely one-third, it's about 38%, barely one-third of children of color, uh, that's all colors, okay, all skin colors, um, are reading at third-grade level. I mean, that is that's an astronomical disparity between white colored kids and all the rest. And, you know, that that alone, the inability to read at third grade level, and then there are also the same kind of disparities at fifth grade and eighth grade, the inability to read at the level that's expected of you, that creates a handicap that will dog you your entire life. And because of poverty, black women are less likely to have jobs with health insurance benefits. Because remember, you know the education system has not not served them well. So they're coming out of the gate, coming out assuming they graduate from high school. They're coming out of high school not nearly as well prepared as their white color counterparts. So they're getting jobs that don't pay as well, getting jobs that don't have benefits. Okay, and that means they're less likely when they get pregnant to have access to quality prenatal care. There's also racism. On the whole, people of color are treated differently by healthcare professionals compared to white-colored people. This has been documented time and again. Black women are less likely to have access to quality hospitals with the equipment to handle pregnancy-related emergencies. And healthcare professionals are less likely to give credence to the pain complaints of black women Compared to white color women, and this can result again in a delay of treatment or less than adequate treatment. Another example of how white and black pregnant women are treated differently relates to induced labor. So I'm, so um, the women who are hearing, listening to this right now, and you know who struggled with their pregnancies and then were able to have their labor induced, okay versus continuing to struggle and then the baby may be, uh, be uh, placed in a stress situation and then we've got the risk of very, very serious complications. Um, white color women are more likely to be induced okay, for birth compared to uh, women of color. Um, why? Because doctors think that black women can handle it. They don't believe that it's as bad as black women are saying. Okay, All of this takes us back to Congresswoman Lauren Underwood's co-authored Black Maternal Health Momnibus, I got it right, bill, aimed to protect black women and other women of color during uh, their pregnancies and childbirth. Among other things, the omnibus bill would improve data collections around maternal health. It would grow and diversify the perinatal workforce to ensure that every mom in America, receives culturally congruent maternity care and support. I That, that I'm quoting out of the bill itself. Um, trust me, I could not have come up with culturally congruent, and but I think it's a great phrase. The bill will also invest in digital tools like telehealth to improve maternal care. Um, of course, we need to make sure that the moms have access uh, to the Internet and have access to like laptops and computers. And it will also, the bill will also work to improve the care of pregnant and postpartum veterans. So, you know, it's, it's, it's omnibus. It's trying to take care of a whole group of people in a comprehensive, large way. Finally, it will provide funding to community organizations working to improve maternal care. It will be interesting to see where things go with this proposed legislation, the omnibus, um, you know, bill. Uh, to protect uh, maternal black women and and women of other skin colors and, and other cir- circumstances. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. Um, because right off, I can already hear conservative legislators resisting because the bill doesn't also focus on white-color women. What are we doing about our white-color women as well? And that's, of course, because they either don't understand, or they just totally refuse to accept the idea that we are in a society that is greatly, greatly divided in terms of privileges and benefits along skin color lines. So I'm going to try and keep track of this bill. Um, it's, you know, we, we've got, you know, the sponsors include uh, uh, Cory Booker over on the Senate side. We will see what happens Um I fear a great amount uh, that President Joe and uh, Veep Kamala's um, agenda isn't going to go very far. I, I fear it. I really do. Um, I don't know whether... Uh, well, that's a whole different segment at some other time, okay? Stay tuned. I'll see what I can do about keeping track of it and keeping you advised. All right. Well, listen. Um, I've got uh, coming up uh, stuff that maybe will talk about make talk a little bit about compassion and how humans are good to each other how, how do how would you like that how about a little up for your day okay because that, literally that's really what I try and be I try and be the person that brings stories about how we're good to each other and when we come back I'll share two of those with you thanks you're listening to me Ellie crook Ellie 2.0 radio and the lovely am 950 thanks Gets it right. in any human being ever read kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, King of Night Vision, King of Insight. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. All right. Um, you know, one of the hallmarks of my work, I certainly. I certainly endeavor for this to be a hallmark, is about compassion and about um, reminding all of us uh, that we care about each other far more than anyone, anyone believes. And you, you've heard me speak about this before. I am the canary in the coal mine, but I am not dying, I'm thriving because my work continually reinforces to me that regardless of whether you're red or you're blue or Bernie or whether you're, you know, liberal or conservative or however you want to describe it, that we actually care about each other across all kinds of lines. We do. And if you ever get my newsletter, The Ripple, which comes out once a month, although not this July, I'm taking a break this month, but it'll come out in August. Um, If you get The Ripple, you know that I share stories about how people are good to each other. And I continually hear from people, emails back, oh, Ellie, I read your newsletter. Thank you for reminding me about how good we are. Ellie, you made me cry with that story. Not that I'm trying to make anybody cry, but the point here is I do my best to remind the world um, that we actually are good people. We are. Now, I'm going to share a couple of stories for you, one from uh, one that's not in, that's not in the ripple. Okay. That I had planned to put in the ripple, but it didn't get in there because I found a different story. So I'm going to share one that's not in June ripple, but I'm going to share one that is in the June ripple. But if you got the ripple in June and you read it, I think you'll still enjoy my oral recitation of that story. But let's begin with a story out of Detroit. Okay. Now, uh, many of you know I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I'm still licensed in the state of Minnesota, no longer practicing, but former trial lawyer with more than 100 trials. So stories about compassion around the court system particularly catch my eye. And out of Detroit comes the story of Wayne County Judge Bruce Morrow and a decision that he made 16 years ago when he gave a multi-arrested drug offender a second chance. Instead of... Um, sentencing this person to prison, Judge Morrow gave the then 27-year-old Ed Martell three years probation. He was, he, Ed Martell had been a previously convicted multiple-time drug offender. But he gave, instead of sending him to prison, which, he, that, which Judge Morrow absolutely could have done, he instead sentenced Ed Martell to three years probation. And at the time of that sentencing, Judge Morrow did one more thing. He challenged, he challenged Ed, the, you know, the, the defendant, to come to court the next time with an achievement, such as becoming a corporate executive. Now, Judge Morrow later related that, you know, um, you know uh, maybe it was in jest when he said that, but he really intended for Ed, the defendant, to believe that the judge thought that Ed could do anything he wanted to do. He could be anything he wanted to be. And it turned out that that statement in the courtroom by Judge Morrow to Defendant Ed was what Defendant Ed needed to hear. Because it was a shot of confidence enough to cause Defendant Ed to believe in himself. And slowly, very slowly, he remade his his life. Um... He had, a, he had a hiccup in the form of a probation violation, but <clears throat> he got past that. And what he did is he started at the bottom. He had to go back. He had to go back. Defendant Ed had to go back and get his GED. And then it was on to community college where Ed settled on the idea of becoming a lawyer. But, you know, um, how people get ideas, okay. But then you have other people that are like, oh, that's a little bit too big an idea for you. And the educators were discouraging Ed from pursuing that course of going to law school because they believed that his record as a repeat felon would disqualify him from being considered for a law license. And that was not necessarily, um, you know, out of bounds for the educators to be telling Ed that because there are strict requirements about Uh, uh, qualifications to practice law. But nonetheless, Ed pressed on and aided by Judge Morrow. So he defended Ed and Judge Morrow uh, kept in touch with each other. They talked by phone every couple of every couple of months. I mean, we're talking for 16 years. That is quite that is quite an accomplishment. Um, Eventually, um, Ed completed his undergraduate degree and his law studies at the University of Detroit Mercy. Uh, when Ed clinched a clerkship at the Federal Public Defender's Office in Washington, D.C., D. which, by the way, is a very, very prestigious clerkship. Judge Morrow, our judge in Detroit, drove Ed the eight hours and hundreds of miles from Detroit to D.C. to go start the clerkship. So I want you to think about this. This is a judge, and if I think about it too much, I'm going to start to cry, because it's a judge who decided he is going to use his role to make the world better. And he walked the walk. I mean, he drove the drove. He drove the miles to get Ed, um, you know, he gave him the confidence. He stayed in touch with him. And then he's like, I'm taking you to D.C. so you can start your, start as a law clerk. The big test came whether Michigan legal professional administrators. So every you know you apply for the bar, you, the bar you've got to fill out a very lengthy application, and there's part of it about fitness to practice law, which is about prior arrest, prior drug use, prior you know prior. Um, uh, you know, therapy and things like that. And then they go and they get your, they go and get your counseling records, okay? All of it is intended to make sure that if you're a lawyer, you're not going to take advantage of clients, that you're not going to break the law while you're a lawyer, that you're not going to bring the law profession into disrepute, disrepute. And so in Michigan, the big question was when Ed applied to take the bar, whether or not he would be able to, Actually, be licensed. Now, and the way it works, okay, is you don't find that out until you you actually take the bar. So, Ed, defendant Ed, had to go and study for the bar. Not something easy. Let me remind you, please. I mean, I can test to that. Um, So, he went and took the bar. He passed the bar. As part of his application to become a lawyer, he submitted a 1,200 page application with attestations of fitness for him by many people who had come to know defendant Ed in his new life, in his new persona. And that included help from Judge Morrow and and a Detroit law firm that had hired Ed as a law clerk. It it took only 15 minutes of deliberation. I'm so happy to report that the ethics people um, voted to approve Ed's application to be a lawyer. And so the reason I'm telling you about this is that it's because of a Washington Post story where um, there was this picture of Ed Morrow, excuse me, of Ed, um, uh, Ed Martell, standing in Judge Morrow's courtroom with a suit and a bow tie, with his hand on a Bible, and Judge Martell, Judge excuse me, Judge Morrow, get it right, Ellie, Judge Morrow, swarming. And you see this man, you see defendant Ed Smiling the biggest smile in the world. In reflecting on the great event, Judge Morrow said that most people fail because they never get the help they need. He went on to say, There's no such thing in my mind as a self made person. Think about that. What if we all got the help? What if we all got the help from someone, even a stranger? at the time that we needed it. How different would the world be for us? huh? All right, we're going to take a quick break and then come back with another quick story of compassion for you. And uh, hopefully I'm brightening your day. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on AM 950, the Ellie 2.0 radio show. Thanks. 2.0 2.0 Radio. So, I gave you one story of great compassion in the legal profession. Now, I'm going to give you a story of compassion in the waffle business. <laughs> um, so, the readers of uh, my newsletter will know what I'm talking about. I've got a piece in the, newslet- in the newsletter titled Waffle House Compassion and Rippling. And this is a story about a uh, waffle house in Center Point, Alabama. And it relates back to high school graduation season. And there was a, a man there, uh, Timothy, Timothy Harrison, who was um, a Waffle House part-time employee, um, 17 years old. And he uh, was graduating from high school. He went to the manager of the Waffle House before the graduation and said, hey, I need to have Sunday off. I'm going to graduate Is that okay? And the manager's like, well, sure, of course, you're going to graduate. Well, um, things did not fall into place for Timothy because his mother couldn't make it. She had to work. Um, And think about that, okay? Think about the circumstances, again, of, of folks that don't have a lot of advantage or privilege. She had to work, so she couldn't come to the graduation. His father was estranged, so he didn't have his father. Timothy didn't have a car, and the graduation was not in uh, uh, Center Point, uh, Alabama. It was over in Birmingham, which is about an hour away. And on top of that, Timothy didn't have the money to get the gown, cap and gown and all the other stuff that goes with it. So on the day of the graduation, that Sunday, um, what does Timothy do? He comes to work at the Waffle House. And that's when the manager, Cedric, says, what are you doing here? And Timmy, w- Timothy went on to explain, well, I can't make it to graduation because X, Y, you know, the things I just related to you, he said, I'm, I thought I might as well just come and work. And at that point, that's when the manager said, um, no. <laughs> he said, uh, uh, go home, get your paperwork, call the school, and we will figure out the rest. And what he did then, he, the manager called all of the waffle house employees together and he said to them we're going to get Timothy to graduation and so one of the one of the team members waffle house well people the team members and a couple of uh, uh you know uh, customers threw 40 bucks each because they needed to get some things so one of the team members drove uh drove Timothy to the high school to go get his cap and gown and and pay whatever fee. So they had some money. They, they gave him the money for that. And then as they were doing that, another team member went to Target and bought <laughs> graduation clothes for Timothy because he didn't have nice clothes. And so they end up coming back to the Waffle House and they give Timothy the clothes. He goes into the restroom and uh, you know tr- puts the clothes on And then he comes out and he relates um, when he came out uh, that he just felt like a million bucks. And and if you go, all you have to do is Google Waffle House graduation story, Washington Post, and you're going to see pictures of Timothy, you know, beaming in in this nice shirt and tie and and brand new slacks and brand new shoes you're going to see him beaming and then you'll see the picture of Cedric's four-year-old daughter putting the you know the cap on on Timothy as he's got the gown on you know to get him all kind of prepped for the graduation so Timothy then drive excuse me the manager then drives Timothy to high school with a couple of the waffle stu- waffle house, you know, co co-workers. They had hoped to go into the graduation but they couldn't because of COVID. So they waited outside. And they wait in the car. And they see Timothy come out with the diploma in hand, cap and gown on, with the biggest smile in the world. And Timothy says, "It's the best day of my life." Now, right there would be an incredibly great story, okay? And right then and there would have been enough, I think, to warm just about everybody's hearts. But it got better than that because the local news station heard about this, about this act of compassion by the Waffle House manager and colleagues and a couple of customers. They did a, aired a piece about it. And then the local community college, there's some faculty members from Lawson State Community College in Birmingham that saw this story. And the next thing you know, Lawson State Community College is offering Timothy two-year full ride to go to the community college. And the chance to go to college all because of Waffle House team members stepping up to help on that graduation day it was life-changing for Timothy. It's something that he said. And he said it would. if they had not done that, if the community college had not done that, it would be an opportunity. He'd, he'd, not, he'd probably not go to college. Um, going forward, uh, Cedric, the manager, the Waffle House manager, this, plans to stay involved in Timothy's life he would quoted, he told the Washington Post, I am his full-time mentor, he said. I feel really good about what's about to happen next for him, and I'll always be there along the way. Again, another story about a human stepping in to help another human. No obligation to do so. But they did it. Why? We have good, kind, compassionate hearts. We do. And I know it's so difficult to remember that right now. But it's true, we do. We just don't hear about those stories on a regular basis. I hope that I made you smile a little bit today with those two stories. When we come back, I've got a little bit of a hodgepodge of things to talk to you about. And then we'll just kind of wrap her up. Thanks. for you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, if you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Sign up for my newsletter. Go to elliekrug.com. You'll see the newsletter bar. Sign up for it. It's easy peasy. Thanks. We'll be back. Oh, you can join the other 9,227 people who are on the newsletter. Thanks. Bye. 2.0 Radio on AM 950. I hope that I've brightened your day. <laughs> Brett was just telling me that um, I, I, I kind of took you down, now I took you back up. I'm kind of now, uh, I think I'm going to probably take you down just, yeah, I probably will. Just I, It's a hodgepodge, so I've got a number of things that I'm going to give to you very quickly here. Um, about a month, a month and a half ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, one of the Featured high uh, idealist that we had was Darnella Frazier, who was the then seventeen-year-old who filmed the murder of George Floyd. Very brave, very very brave young human. She she uh, got a uh, um, honorable mention Pulitzer because of that filming. I ra- I bring her up because. That was trauma, of course, in her life. And now, unfortunately, last week, um, or this week, uh, there was more trauma in her life and, and in the life of her greater family because her uncle, uh, Laniel Frazier, who was just 40 years old and the father of six, um, was killed on a Minneapolis street when a Minneapolis police car that was engaged in chasing a robbery suspect when the police car went out of control and collided with uh, Laniel Frazier's car. And he was killed in that accident. And I I tell you about this because it seems that tragedy, you know, in some families with some folks, just continues to come in a sequence of events. And my heart goes out to Darnella Frazier and to her greater family over this tragedy. I would note that uh, Benjamin Crump, the lawyer for the um, George Floyd family, for the Floyd family, um, is now going to be the lawyer for the Linnell uh, Frazier family. Stay tuned. Secondly, I wanted on this hodgepodge just to talk about, very quickly, the idea of learning on your own, or being curious about the world, um, the the story that I did earlier today, okay, about black maternal health, you know, I, I, I had some kind of idea. I mean, I knew generally that the United States lagged in terms of developed country. Not even lagged. I mean, we're like at the bottom of developed countries quote unquote, developed countries about maternal death. But I didn't know the stats as it related to different skin colors here in the US and how much more horrible the stats are for maternal deaths for black women and healthcare outcomes generally for black people compared to white colored people. But the point here is, you know, I, I, I had that story about, you know, our Congressperson and, and, you know, of, of Lauren Underwood. And then, you know, then the the, the omni, um omnibus bill, okay, and then that led me to I, I need to go and investigate and learn more about this maternal health disparity. The point here is we need to be curious, and then we need to do the work. Not that I'm anybody great, but it's important that we do the work. And It's important, you know. I mean, that's why God created Google and Wikipedia. Okay, it it it's. These are tools that you can use to be curious about and learn enough. And and again, you don't have to go read a a 250-page book to get educated on something. You can, yes, I mean, 250-page book will get you really educated on something. But you can find and you can learn about the world in 15-minute segments. Little snippets. You can. And I would offer it is your obligation to do that. Because when we learn about the world, our compassion grows and we become more interconnected. Human familiarity is the only pathway for us to get through the crap that's going on in our country right now. And you can't become familiar with someone if you don't understand their story or the community they are from. Lastly, this time next week, Um, Actually, as (laughs) uh, you're listening, I remember I taped the show the day before. So this is Friday. You'll be hearing this on Saturday. As you're listening to this, I will be almost in Des Moines to pick up my brand new puppy. Jack the dog. Jack the golden retriever puppy. I have been spending the last week getting my house ready for Jack the dog. I have gating... Up in my house, separating the kitchen from the living room and the sunroom and dining room, it looks like the Berlin Wall in my house. Stay tuned. And if you tune in next Friday when I tape the show, and if you're on Facebook Live, you'll get to see Jack the dog because I'll be bringing him to the station every time I tape the show. That's assuming he behaves. Okay. I hope that gave you a smile. I'm looking forward to Jack the dog. I'm not looking forward to not getting sleep for a few days. All right. A big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson, who does all kinds of hoops for me. Thank you, Brett. You're always great. A Thanks to you, my listeners, for tuning in. Please share about my show. I'm hearing from more and more people that they're listening to the podcast. Thank you for doing that, podcast listeners. Really appreciate it. Go out and do something to make the world better. Will you? Talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye.